Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On June 16, 1858, Abraham Lincoln gave what is arguably his second most memorable speech in Springfield, Illinois, after he had accepted the Illinois Republican Party's nomination to fill that state's U.S. Senate seat. If you think the division we see in our country today over issues like immigration or abortion is bad, it doesn't hold a candle to how divided our nation was in the late 1850s over slavery. Back then, the United States, uh, there was, in the United States, there was a brewing hostility that existed, uh, and there was a fear that civil war was inevitable. Generally speaking, the majority of Republicans lived in the North, and they were against slavery, generally speaking, and the majority of Democrats lived in the South, and they were for slavery. Lincoln's nomination set him up to run against a pro-slavery Democrat nominee named Stephen Douglas. Douglas had already been working uh, with the Republicans in the North to negotiate a compromise that would allow slavery to spread even further. For these reasons, Lincoln made the most of his opportunity that day in front of more than a thousand delegates. He drew a line in the sand And he let the nation know what he felt and what he intended on doing. On that day, he passionately proclaimed, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe the government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. And I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing, or all the other. Lincoln was quoting Jesus from the Gospels uh, when, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of uh, working for Satan because Jesus was casting out demons. And so Jesus said, well, uh, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Lincoln was challenging the North that day in 1858, though, to resist the temptation to compromise the truth that slavery was wrong for the sake of unity. He knew that unity gained by sacrificing truth on the altar of peace was worth nothing. He also knew the unity of the whole is achieved and preserved when the individual parts set aside their preferences for the greater good. Well, the Apostle Paul knew this as well. He knew these truths about unity well, and he was telling the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, they needed to know these truths about unity because he was concerned for them. They were starting to fracture as a church, and he was trying to, to stop this church from falling apart. He knew that a church divided against itself cannot stand. 
it will simply implode within. And so we're continuing our series in the book of Philippians today called Outrageous Joy. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 2 and to take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in. Philippians chapter 2. And as you turn there, just a refresher or to bring some of you up to speed that maybe have not been here, Philippians uh, uh, is a warm thank you letter that Paul sent to the church in Philippi for financial support they had sent him during his church planting work. The apostle wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome from 61 to 62 AD. He was there because he was preaching the gospel. And he wouldn't stop after being told not to. So he was awaiting trial in Rome. According to Acts chapter 16, Paul had helped start the church in Philippi about 11 to 12 years earlier on his second missionary journey. Although it's friendly in its tone, and that sets it apart from other letters in the New Testament that are stronger and maybe more corrective, uh, the church in Philippi was by no means a perfect church. Paul uh, takes advantage of the opportunity as he's writing them to thank them to also address some things they were struggling with, including a lack of joy, false teachers, pride, unresolved conflict, and disunity. Our theme verse for this series is Philippians 4.4. It captures everything that Paul is trying to say in this letter in one verse. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it. Uh, But let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now you might remember me mentioning last week that the Philippians were a proud church, especially proud of their Roman citizenship. Unfortunately, this pride had led to some conflict and division that were robbing them of joy. And since a divided church poses no threat to the enemy, the apostle urged them in chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 2, which we looked at last week, uh, the apostle urged them to strive for unity by refocusing on spreading the message of the gospel to get their eyes off of each other in their own selfishness and pride, and instead to get their eyes back on the vision. Well, in today's passage, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, this spiritual father continues his plea for unity by urging his readers to put on Christ-like humility. Thus, our big idea for today is this, uh, Christ-like humility is the first floor of joyful unity. Christ-like humility is the first floor of joyful unity. If the gospel is the foundation upon which unity is built, then having humility in Christ would be the first floor of the house. Uh, now, now you might be wondering, well, if, if building church unity is, is that simple, you just got to know the gospel and then, you know, put on some humility, how come there just aren't more churches that are unified? Why does it seem like so many are not unified? Well, it's because all churches have sinners in them and all sinners have pride. 
varying degrees of pride. One of the biggest problems with pride, though, is that it blinds individuals from realizing that they have it. Or simply put, we manifest pride in our sin nature by elevating our desires above the needs of others and setting our desires against the desires of God. And because pride is blinding, unfortunately what it does is it makes us think everybody else has a pride problem but us. Now we all do this on and off throughout the week, uh, even as we walk with the Lord because of our inherited sin nature. And this is why Peter gave us the motivation we should need to pursue humility. And Peter and the apostles make it clear, for the Christ follower, it is not optional. Having humility is not optional. It's a non-negotiable. And so Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As you can see, we need to take our pride seriously because it's the one thing that can cause us to miss the grace of God, to miss God's favor in our eye, in our lives. Excuse me. And because our pride will not be eradicated until our sin nature is extracted in eternity, I've encouraged those that I counsel and mentor to admit, just as I do, and I say this often, and I pray this often, I am a prideful man or woman, but I am desperately pursuing humility. I am a prideful man or woman, but I am desperately pursuing humility. Hence the title of my message. And so with that, if you would look at the text with me in Philippians chapter 2, as I read verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the first truth that Paul wants to tell us about humility, and that is, number one on your outline, Christ-like humility is uncommonly sensitive to others. Christ-like humility is uncommonly sensitive to others. Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. The word ambition is an interesting word. It was used in the first century to describe someone who was seeking political office by unfair means. Or someone who promotes himself in a fractious way. Sometimes this is externally Obvious, while other times it's not. You know as well as I do that someone can do the right thing with the wrong motives. They, they can do what looks good on the outside, but have selfish ambition in their hearts. For example, a church member could volunteer for a leadership position so they could not just serve the Lord, but have a broader platform to promote their business in the church. Or, or they could do a favor for you only because they plan on asking you for a favor later. In some translations, the word conceit is rendered vain conceit. And this is because the Greek word actually means literally empty glory. Empty glory. 
I think one of the reasons humble people are generally more joyful than prideful people is that they have figured out seeking God's glory is more fulfilling than seeking their own. Because seeking their own glory always leaves them empty. It never satisfies. It's never enough. Now Paul uses here in this passage the same put off, put on concept that he taught the Ephesians in chapter 4 of Ephesians and the Colossians in chapter 3 of that letter. Except this time, uh, it's implicit instead of explicit. He, he calls us and the Philippians to, in essence, put off selfish ambition or conceit and instead put on, using sort of clothing and wardrobe language, put on counting others as more significant than ourselves. Or in other words, and here's letter A and B on your outline, believers who pursue Christ-like humility, they first do letter A, they look up to people instead of looking down on them. They look up to people instead of looking down on them. In verse 3, Paul says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The apostle says that before we can count others as more significant, though, we first have to see ourselves the way the Lord does. Notice, in humility is in front of count. The word for humility used here in the original text literally means to have a deep sense of one's moral littleness, a lowliness of mind. That's worth writing down. Humility means to have a deep sense of one's moral littleness or a lowliness of mind. It contains at its root the Greek word mind, which is also the root of the key word you've heard me mention already, phroneo, I've mentioned it the last couple of weeks, meaning to, to think or direct the mind. So why is this important? Why am I telling you about Greek words again like you're in seminary? Well, here's why. Because Paul is saying how we think about ourselves will determine how we see others. In humility, a littleness, moral littleness, a loneliness of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. He told the Romans the same thing when he wrote a letter to that church in Romans 12.3. Paul said, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourselves with sober judgment, meaning the opposite of being drunk with yourself, sober judgment, honest judgment of who you really are. Thinking of ourselves with sober judgment means being aware of our own weaknesses while focusing on the strengths of others, instead of Focusing on the weakness of others while we make everyone aware of our own strengths. 
a few years ago, I stumbled upon a, a great quote from an unlikely source, uh, a fam the famous poet Rolf Waldo Emerson, uh, and it has helped me grow in this area. I tend to struggle with having a critical spirit, and so uh, Emerson's uh, insight has helped me, and I, I think of it often. He says, every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that, I learn from him. Every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that, I learn from him. Or, or to put it more plainly, if we focus on the strengths of others that they possess, that we don't, we'll start treating them as more significant than ourselves. By, by focusing on, man, he or she is so good at that. I stink at that. I can learn from them in that area. As opposed to what our pride wants to do because of our inherited sin nature is, man, I'm good at all these things. They're not good at those things I'm good at. So, those who, believers, who pursue Christ-like humility, they look up to people instead of looking down on them, and then let her be. Believers who pursue Christ-like humility also think outside their own little world. They think outside their own little world. Paul says we are to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Unfortunately, this seems to only happen when a crisis hits, uh, like, for example, when a wildfire uh, incinerates a Californian community or a tornado thrashes a city in Oklahoma. Uh, neighbors pitch in and help each other during the cleanup because ethnic background and income level and uh, square footage of your house just no longer matters when there's a natural disaster. But it shouldn't take a natural disaster or a crisis to get us to think of others in our decision-making. For example, we can consider the interest of others by being a better listener than talker. They're asking how they are doing instead of always telling them with great detail how we are doing or by avoiding gossip and slander, because that would not be in the best interest of those that we're gossiping and slandering about. Or another example is we can, we can put the interest of others in, in mind. We can think of them as well by not missing so much church that our, our ministry teammates have to pick up our slack because we're gone so often. By thinking about who's going to be there when I'm out of town, and how that's going to affect them. I could go on and on, but Paul is saying, in humility, don't just think of your own interests, but think about how your decisions will affect others. So, if pride is our sin nature, elevating our desires above the needs of others, and against the desires of God, then... Here's a biblical definition of humility that I've been working on for a couple of years. Uh, I think humility, as I look at all the scriptures on 
this particular topic from the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Gospels, and the Epistles. Humility, I think, is the sober awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. It's, it's the sober awareness, a self-awareness of who I am in my own sin in light of God's holiness. Now, this is important, and I've chosen each term very, very intentionally because our tendency, again, our sin nature, with the pride that it manifests, we want to compare ourselves to others by comparing our strengths to their weaknesses so we look good and can feel good about ourselves. But biblical humility says, no, 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 no. Compare yourself to the Lord who has all strengths and no weaknesses, no flaws, because he's holy. Compare yourself to the Lord. That's the standard. And then you'll be put in your right place. So, so biblical humility, it's, it's seeing ourselves as utterly helpless without the Lord. Deserving of nothing. Unworthy of anything. It's realizing that apart from him, we can do nothing. That without him, we have nothing. And that if we must boast about anything, our only boast is in him. In fact, anyone who professes to be a Christ follower should never say, I'm so proud of myself. Look what I did. That's bad. Because what that is, in essence, is stealing glory from the Lord that only he deserves. Because in the Lord's eyes, if you get good grades in school, he sees it as, you got good grades because I helped you. I gave you your brains and I answered your prayers when you were desperate. And you couldn't remember the, the content for the exam. If you get a promotion and a raise, the Lord sees it as, I moved in the heart of your supervisor to promote you. I gave you strength and the skills that you have so that you could get that promotion. The Corinthians were proud as well. And that's why Paul says to them, he asked them a very convicting rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? From the Lord is what he meant. And the answer to that rhetorical question was nothing. Everything you've got is from him. So, humility is the sober awareness of our own sinfulness and a lot of God's holiness. And Christ-like humility is important because it's the first floor of joyful unity. You cannot have unity without humility. In a church, in a family, in a marriage, in a relationship, in a company, on a team, there has to be humility. Next, look at uh, verses 5 through 8 with me. The apostle continues, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Here's number two on your outline. Christ-like humility is unconditionally, unconditionally submitted to God's will. Christ-like humility is unconditionally submitted to God's will. In verse 5, the apostle says, Have this mind among yourselves. There's that word that I've been mentioning, our key word, mind. It comes from the Greek phroneo, means to think or to direct the mind. Paul, again, is reminding us that how we think determines how we behave and how we feel. He then says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, we should follow Jesus' example by thinking with humility. Now, Jesus modeled humility during his earthly ministry by, letter A, only saying what his father wanted said. He modeled humility during his earthly ministry by only saying what his father wanted said. In John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has given me what to say and what to speak. He's saying that he walks so closely with his father and was so submitted to his father's will that every word coming out of his mouth was from his father. Can you imagine being so saturated with God's word and so filled with the Holy Spirit this week that every word that comes out of your mouth is from your heavenly father? No, I I can't imagine that. I think it's possible to get close. We should want that. We should want that. We should want our lives to be so word-saturated and spirit-filled that everything we say and do is wrapped around what Jesus wants us to do. And by the way, Jesus, he gave us good reason to do so because in Matthew 12, 36, it's one of those verses you want to take out of the Bible. Jesus said, When he returns, we will have to give an account for every careless word that we speak. I know it's going to be really quiet after service today, right? Everybody's going to be using nonverbals to communicate. Writing notes to each other in the worship folder. I'm trying not to speak a careless word, so I'm going to write this so that I can think about what I'm saying first. Bye. <laughs> Have a nice week. I mean, that's just, every time I read Matthew twelve thirty six. I don't want to talk for like the rest of the day. So Jesus modeled humility during his earthly ministry by only saying what his father wanted said, but then he also did this. He also modeled humility by, letter B, only doing what his father wanted done. By only doing what his father wanted done. In John 5, uh, John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, uh, I can do nothing on my own. 
because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, one of the things that a lot of believers forget is that Jesus didn't just come to live on earth and then die on the cross, be buried and resurrected so that he could offer salvation. He also came to show us a better way to live. That's why there's a ton of verses that call us to be imitators of Christ, to be like him. Even Paul told the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're supposed to learn from him. And what Jesus shows us in his life when it comes to God's will is that he was so in sync with his father's will that he didn't even think about doing something outside of God's will. He, he, he absolutely wanted to make sure everything he did was pleasing to his father. So I can't help but ask, how would your life look different if you were committed or as committed to the Father's will as Jesus was. You see, because a submission to God's will is not only a sign of humility, it's also a sign of salvation. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, verse 21. In other words, Jesus is saying there's going to be more people, and there always has been and always will be, that claim to know me, but the very proof of those who know me are the ones who put action to their words. They actually did my Father's will. Thus, one proof that someone has actually been born again is having the desire to please the Lord and do his will. Because according to Jesus in Matthew 7.21, if somebody professes to know Christ, professes to be a Christian, professes to be born again, but has no desire to do his will, they don't know him. They're, they're in that group that Jesus referenced at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They're, they're the Lord, Lord group. That Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never, I never knew you because you, you didn't want to do my Father's will. So next, Paul tells us Jesus also modeled humility for us in his death. He did it in his life, and he did it in his death. Although he was God, he did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross, and so instead of exercising his rights as God, Jesus surrendered his rights in order to become a man without ceasing to be God. Mind-blowing. Then he set aside his own interests in order to prioritize our interests by voluntarily dying on the cross for our sins. So the apostles' point in, in verses 6 through 8, 5 through 8, excuse me, the apostles' point in verses 5 through 8 is that if Jesus can humble himself when he didn't have to, why can't we when we desperately need to? That's what he's saying. 
brings me to a burning question. How? How do we put on Christ-like humility? I'm very pragmatic. I, I want to know, how does it work? How do we do this? What, give me the specifics. I, I don't like to dabble in theory for too long. I want to get down to pragmatics. Well, the answer, in short, is that we too must die like Christ did. We must die daily to self like Jesus did. Andrew Murray explains this in his classic must-read book titled Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. He writes this, Humility means the giving up of self and taking the place of perfect nothingness before God. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death. In death, he gave the highest, the perfect proof of having given up his will to the will of God. In death, he gave up his self with its natural reluctance to drink the cup. He died to self and the sin that tempted him. It is in death to self that humility is perfected. Next, let's look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, this is Paul's way of bringing things to a conclusion on his discussion here. As a result of what I just told y'all is what he's saying. With a Texas accent. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Number three, Christ-like humility is uncompromisingly surrendered to God's glory. Christ-like humility is uncompromisingly surrendered to God's glory. Jesus arranged his entire earthly life around glorifying his Father. And because he put the interest of others before his own, because he submitted to his Father's will and gave his Father glory for all things in his life, the Father exalted him. When Jesus says in verse 10, when he returns to judge the earth and establish his kingdom, Paul boldly says, oh, don't miss this. Don't miss this, loved ones. In verse 10, I hope you're looking at it in your Bible. Paul is boldly saying, not one being in the entire universe will be left standing when Jesus comes back. Not one. All the angels and saints in heaven, notice that in the text, all the people on earth and all the demons and unbelievers in hell under the earth will bow in agreement with God that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no doubt. There will be no questioning. 
Well, how do you know this? Well, because the Greek word, and I know you all love Greek now, so New Testament Greek, here it is. Every tongue confess. Verse 11. The word confess there is the Greek word exomologeo. It means to acknowledge openly, to agree fully, or to praise. It's similar to, but not the same as, the word homologeo that shows up in places like Romans 9, or sorry, Romans 10, verses 9 and 11, and uh, 1 John 1, 9, where uh, confessions talked about. Uh, it's, not, it's similar, but not the same. This particular word for confession, exolomageo, is to agree and acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he was. It is all the created beings in the universe, as I said, angels and believers in heaven, all the people on the earth at the time, all the demons and unbelievers in hell. It's them agreeing they missed the chance to receive salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. It's their agreement that Jesus is who he says he is. And by the way, if you've not made that life-changing decision yet, I urge you to do so while you still have time because there will not always be time. Because once Jesus comes back for a second time, and the scriptures are clear that we do not know when that will come. Scholars call it the imminent return of Christ. I mean, it can happen at any second. It's too late to repent and receive Christ and to receive salvation. So what, what are they going to be agreeing with God about and praising the Lord for all these beings that are in the heavens and on earth and under the earth? Well, they're going to be agreeing and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 11. Giving you the title Lord is significant because it's, uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, kurios, which means master, owner, ruler. It's a title of authority that was used to refer to Jesus 747 times in the New Testament. It, it, it means, although he was a shepherd, he's not a pushover. Although he was a servant, he's a king. He is not one to be trifled with. He is someone who has all authority entrusted to him by his Father. So Christ-like humility is uncompromisingly surrendered to God's glory. So what do we do now? Here's a couple applications that come to mind on this topic of humility. First, I think we have to admit that we are prideful. Admit that I am a prideful person. That, that is agreeing with God what he has already said about you. This isn't my own idea, by the way. Uh, not only do the scriptures encourage this, but uh, C.S. Lewis did. In Mere Christianity, his famous classic work, 
C.S. Lewis says, quote, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step, too. Nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. I've grown fond of C.S. Lewis with his wit and humor and English vernacular. So admitting that we are prideful is simply agreeing with what God has already said about us in the gospel. We all have an inherited sin nature that makes us prone to rebel against, run from, and disobey God. Yet he loves us anyway and sent Christ to die for us. Yes, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a sinner saved by grace, absolutely. Yes, you are loved. However, your sin nature still resides in your heart with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, until you're with the Lord, you'll do battle with your sin nature the rest of your earthly life. So, admit that I'm a prideful person. Number two, and this builds off number one, make a lifelong commitment to desperately pursue humility. Make a lifelong commitment to desperately pursue humility. It's something that will never be fully grasped, but is absolutely worth chasing. I, I titled this message, The Joy of Pursuing Humility, because humility is one of those traits that can only be obtained by chasing it, but it's quickly lost once you think you have it. Oh, this is why. It's just another reminder of how fallen we are. The fact that we can become proud of being humble. So I said, desperately pursue humility because it doesn't happen by accident. Because our default programming is to pridefully seek our own glory. But when we pursue humility by God's grace and with the help of his spirit, we are able to say what John the Baptist said in John 3.30, and and Bob quoted earlier, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist was able to say that because he knew who he was. And he compared himself to Jesus, not all the sinners that he was baptizing. He had a sober awareness of who he was as a sinner, And he was intimately acquainted with the holiness of God. So one, admit that I'm a prideful person. And two, make a lifelong commitment to desperately pursue humility. Yes, it may be discouraging that you'll never actually achieve it on this side of eternity, but it is absolutely worth it, and it is so desperately needed. And we can can try our best with the Lord's help to get as close as possible. Well, during World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her family helped dozens of Jews escape from the Nazis. 
In the years that followed the war, in the mid-20th century, uh, Ten Boom wrote several books and became a highly sought-after Christian speaker. Uh, during an interview uh, at the height of her popularity, Ten Boom was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble in the spotlight of her fame. Her reply was, was simple. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road, and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? Then she continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. All in favor of saying hee-haw? <laughs> Let's be a church that's passionate about Jesus getting all the praise and honor because Christ-like humility is the first floor of joyful unity. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I know from firsthand experience that a message on humility provokes the pride within me. And I'm guessing it's done the same to others here as well. There's a resistance in our spirits that wants to change the subject or leave the room or we want to regret coming to church today or we wish that it was a different message or we, or we, we come up with all these excuses of why we should not humble ourselves because maybe we'd be taken advantage of or maybe we'll get hurt or... Father, please, would you just extinguish all these excuses and worries and doubts? Would you help me and would you help our church to be totally, desperately pursuing humility? And Lord, would you help us to experience the joy that comes from doing so? Lord we, Lord, we know from the scriptures, prideful people are not joyful. They're anxious, they're irritated. They're focused on their own glory and getting their own needs met. So, Father, would you please show us the various areas and sectors of our lives where pride shows up? And Lord, would you show us how we can put on humility, how we can be Christ-like? And Lord, we need your help because not only is our sin nature powerful, but also the world we live in despises humility. We are bombarded throughout the week, Lord, with messages that we should be proud that we should be self-centered instead of dying to self. 
The world promotes pride, but hates humility, and it's everywhere. So please, Lord, help us to be different by your grace and by your spirit. We thank you again, not only for Christ's sacrifice for us, but also for the example he set for us. Help us, Lord, to be more like him. And we trust that in doing so, we'll experience joyful unity in our church and in our homes that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.